Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is legendary producer-engineer Terry Manning. First of all, trends on the hits on the Billboard Hot 100 charts. The Billboard Hot 100 charts continue to change and evolve, and what ends up happening is the songs that tend to be hot, or the types of songs, the genre of songs that tend to be hot, changes over time, and now is no exception. 42% of the hits on the Billboard Hot 100 are pop songs. Hip-hop has about 29%, and surprisingly enough, R&B has surged to about 21%. This is interesting because last year it was only at about 4%. So pop is down, hip-hop is way down from where it used to be, and R&B is up. Now, again, this has changed from just a few years ago where we had uh, a lot of electronic music. And even though pop music is electronic influence, it's not classified so much as electronic as you might have just a few years ago. So that whole texture of the way the Billboard 100 is put together is different. The other thing that was found was there were basically 19 different instruments that were used across all 100 of these hits. Most of the hits have a synth bass and non-bass synths. So they found that about 90% of all these songs, this is what they had. Something else that's interesting, the typical number of producers on a song these days is three, which is way different from the way it used to be. The way it used to be, of course, is there was one producer and occasionally there might be two, but now the average number is three. So the times they are changing, but you know what? They always change, they always evolve, and what's hot and normal today will most likely be different next year at this time. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now, a UK company called Digiloft did a study of 100,000 songs across thousands of playlists to find what is the best tempo of a song to study to. So what's the best BPM? What they found was that the most popular was 112 BPM. Who are the most popular artists? Well, this is really surprising. BTS comes in at number one, followed by Hans Zimmer. I never would have expected that. Then followed by Taylor Swift, Billie Eilish, and then Mozart. Now, it turns out that what everybody wants is music that's going to create the right mood and help you relax and de-stress and improve your focus and reduce boredom over some long study sessions. So, in fact, it's been found that Mozart may even help your memorization. The general wisdom is that the best songs for concentrating are atmospheric or ambient sounds, but that being said, it doesn't always work out that way as we see from this particular study. And as you well know, the vast majority of consumers, they don't just sit and listen to music while doing nothing else. This is kind of the way it used to be once upon a time. It's not anymore. Most people enjoy music while they're doing other things, and that includes homework and studying. 
My guest this week is Terry Manning, who's had a successful career as a record producer, audio engineer, photographer, composer, singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, and visual artist. Over his career, Terry has worked on some huge hits with Led Zeppelin, ZZ Top, Otis Redding, Joe Walsh, Shania Twain, Al Green, Lenny Kravitz, and many, many more. He's also worked as a photojournalist for New Musical Express, has photographed Chuck Berry, Procol Harum, Jimi Hendrix, Dusty Springfield, as well as capturing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on film the day before his assassination. During the interview, we spoke about being hired at Stax by Steve Cropper, the difference between American and English engineers, working with Otis Redding, his relationship with Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, and much more. I spoke with Terry via Zoom from his home in Texas. I know that when you went to high school, you were really into sports, and it seems unusual for somebody who was that into it to suddenly make kind of a left turn and go into the music business. So what happened? Oh, I loved basketball, football, baseball, and later soccer in in, uh, Memphis State University, now University of Memphis. I loved all of them, uh, but I kept getting hurt in things. In uh, last year of junior high, playing quarterback uh, on the junior high football team, I broke my hand and then missed two seasons after that because of various things. Then running to a baseball practice, I broke my leg fell down and <laughs> broke my leg. So things kept happening. And then uh, in university at Memphis State, I was on the junior varsity basketball team, which is not the varsity, trust me. But uh, we got to play with them, scrimmage with them in practice and everything. And we thought we were really special. And then they canceled the junior varsity when Title IX came in, which is for money had to go to women's sports. They said, sorry, all you junior men's teams, you're gone. We're spending the money on the women. So then I went out for the soccer team. I lasted on that for three years, so that was good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So you were in Memphis already, and and that's how you got started into the Memphis music business, I presume. Yeah, I started in El Paso, Texas in junior high and the first half of high school. And then uh, in the second half of high school, my dad moved us to Memphis, Tennessee, which was exciting to me as much as I loved El Paso, Texas and still do. It was exciting to know that there was, uh, there was at least one and really more record companies in Memphis. And I was going to check this out. So I knew that I could, I loved music. I loved rock and roll. I loved listening to the radio and buying 45s. And I don't think I'd bought an album quite yet, but I bought a, take my allowance every week and buy a new 45 so uh, single. So I was so excited to get to Memphis where some of those singles had come from. So then what was your entrance into the music business in Memphis? Well, at uh, 15 years old in uh, Central High School in Memphis, I had uh, found out where Stax Records was. And I was so, there were two things that happened almost simultaneously. One was Stax Records. So I took my guitar to school one day and kept it in my locker. And then after school, instead of taking the bus in one direction home, I took it in the other direction and went towards Stax and got to Bellevue, uh, sorry, Mac- Mclemore Street in Memphis, got off the bus and walked the few blocks from there to Stax and rang the bell or knocked on the door or whatever they had. And I, I was ushered in uh, by a woman uh, who is still a friend today. Her name is Deanie Parker. 
and she is now at the, uh, uh, was for quite a while the head of the Stax Museum of American Music. Uh, uh, so anyway, she let me in and was very sweet and talked to me a little bit and then said, uh, you know, well, that's all good and well, son, but you're going to have to leave. We've got work to do here and come back in a few years. And a guy happened to walk through, tall, good-looking guy, striding through the, the lobby and said, hey there, son, what's, what's in that guitar case? Excuse me there. So I said, oh, well, it's a, it's a Telecaster, sir. And I sat down at the, and the, I could still see the chairs sitting there, sat down and he said, let's get that guitar out and have a look. The guy's name was Steve Cropper. Yeah. And it just was a, a stroke of just pure luck that he happened to walk through at that minute. And he asked what I was doing and why at 15 years old, I had brought a guitar to Stax Records. And I explained I was going to play guitar. I was going to write songs. I was going to produce. I was going to engineer whatever they needed. Here I was. And he chuckled a little too and said, well, can you make tape copies? And I did know how to run tape machines. My dad and grandfather both had home Wallensack or Webcore or whatever they were, tape recorders, which I was practicing on. I said, sure, I can run a tape machine. So he led me back to the tape copy room and said, well, after school, if you want to come in and copy some tapes, there you go. So that was the introduction in one way. Another was at Central High School, I had in some of my classes was a wonderful guy named Joe Gaston. He was a bass player in a band called Bobby and the Originals. And Joe one day, and I, I knew the keyboard player in that band as well, Bernie Hill. And one day uh, Joe came to me and said, hey, Bernie's leaving the band. Can you play keyboards? I know we've been talking about music every day and stuff. And I said, well, sure. I didn't have a keyboard though. But my mother was a piano teacher and I knew basic chords and things. So uh, uh, I said, yeah, sure. Went home that night and said, dad, you've got to buy me some kind of keyboard. <laughs> so he took me down to Burl Swanger Music on Highland Street in Memphis. We got with the salesman named Bobby Fisher and he sold us a Wurlitzer electric piano, one of the old brown ones. Oh, yeah. With the flat top? Oh, the flat top, yeah, yeah. <laughs> with the little music rack and everything. Yeah. So uh, I, I told Joe, yep, I can play keyboards, and I have a keyboard. So I went to the first band practice at Joe Gaston's house, and I, I wasn't very good, but I guess I was good enough to show that I knew some chords, and I knew when you changed from C you weren't going C, F, G anymore. If you were in D, you're going D, G, A. Or if you're in A, you're going A, D, E, or whatever, yeah. those three chords for rock and roll. So uh, I figured it out enough to, to hang on in the band. So s simultaneously, I was t copying tapes at one of the greatest record companies in the history of the world and playing in a band in one of the greatest music cities in the world. So it was just right place, right time, starting out right then. What was like your first experience in the studio, like in a real session at Stax? At Stax, now there were, again, simultaneous things happening. But on the Stax side of it, uh, every day that I could, I would go down the hall and peek into the real control room and just look in and watch what the engineers were doing and watch what the uh, Steve Cropper or Jim Stewart or whoever was producing was saying watch the musicians and how they interacted. Just watch, 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 learn, learn, learn. And then one day someone came running out in the hall. I was in the tape copy room 
and an engineer had not showed up and a session was about to start. And they said, hey, you can, you're an engineer, right? And I said, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I went down there and I started pushing some buttons around and I, they said, we've plugged in some mics and, but we're, and I just pushed buttons and finally sound came out and they said, oh, great, here we go. And so I, you know, adjusted some levels and the t somebody started the tape machine and I was an engineer, sort of, all of a sudden. So that was the first stack situation. Over at uh, the band side, our, our local band, Bobby and the Originals, just before I joined the band, they had done a demo recording with Roland James at Sonic Studio in Memphis. And they wanted to get on George Klein's Talent Party TV show on Channel 13, WHBQ in Memphis. And uh, the tape was okay, but it didn't sound great. So our manager then, Bobby Fisher, said, I've got a friend named John Fry. We're going to take, he's got a home studio. We'll take it to him. He'll make it sound better. I didn't know at the time, but really he was mastering it. He was going to compress it and EQ it and make it bigger and better sounding. So we took the tape by there, uh, by John Fry's home studio. And yes, it was a home studio, but he had Ampex machines, an Altec radio board, one of the old green ones, a mm -hmm. uh, tube board. And it was a really fantastic setup for a, quote, home studio. And he did EQ it, master, uh, compress it, got it louder and better and deeper and higher and everything better sounding. And we got on Talent Party. But because of that, John Fry said, you know, I kind of like this band you've got here. So uh, why don't they come by and see about recording? I said, okay, but we need a producer. So he called a friend of, of, a, friend of a friend who was, was Jim Dickinson. And he brought Jim Dickinson in to produce us. So we tracked a, a record, a first single there in John's home studio. And Jim produced. And I, we were upset because they brought in a couple of session musicians. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we, we were sad. But we got to play on the B-side. But uh, it was an interesting single. And it did get on the local radio in the Mid-South a bit. That got us on uh, a tour uh, opening for the Yardbirds and Jerry Lewis and the Playboys. So we opened for them on Dick Clark's Caravan of Stars at Skateland Frazier. <laughs> oh. And uh, just there was a little step everywhere along the way that where things happened for us and happened to me by being around these two great places. But uh, meeting John Fry was another big step because he was quite the studious engineer uh he had read all the books about engineering that he could find it was really into sound and he taught me a lot of things as did steve cropper and jim stewart over at stacks as we went along the way with little sessions going into bigger sessions then before i knew it i was thrust into i talk a lot excuse me <laughs> uh, please please before i knew it i was thrust into these jingle sessions they were happening at Ardent Studio, not John's home studio, but we had just relocated to 1457 National Street in Memphis and put in a reel with a big Spectrosonics board. Well, not that big by today's standards, but uh, uh, I think a 12-input Spectrosonics board and uh, got several Neumann microphones and Shure mics and all the other mics and headphones and everything. 
and set it up like a real rental studio. And we, I didn't know it at the time, but John had put in the best, technically best studio in Memphis. And we, he kept up over the years with that. The first with eight track, the first with 16 track, the first with 24 track, more mics, you know, bigger boards, everything along the way. But I was thrust into these jingle sessions at like 16 or 17 years old. And there would be 50 or 60 players, full orchestra, uh, drummer and percussionist, upright bass and electric bass, two or three guitars, two or three keyboards. I mean, a big session. And they were union sessions, which meant there were three hours. There was so much to do in those three hours. There was no, oh, let's try that again, boys. I made a mistake. You had to be on your chops. You had to have it right. Fortunately, John and Steve and Jim Stewart and other and Bobby Fuller earlier in, in, in El Paso had taught me the things they knew well, and I just assimilated it all, and I was suddenly doing 50 or 60-piece sessions uh, where you the, the, quote, songs were jingles. They were 30 seconds long. Lucky if you had a minute long. So the band wasn't going to play over and over and over for you. They were going to give you 30 seconds you better have your settings right. And then they wanted to hit record. So quite the school of engineering, just out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's actually the way I started too, doing jingles. Excellent. And it's one of those things where there's no no for an answer. It's like, let's go, we're ready. Yeah, you better be right because yeah. uh, it's union. It's going to be done right now. They're, we're ready to go. Hit record and don't tell us anything wrong. Yeah, you were a staff engineer at one point in time then for Stax. Was that true, or were you just an, an independent that would work there? Uh, both, really, but I started out, in, as I said, in the tape room and then went into the control room and would do sessions. Uh, and I was not, I was, and th then quickly I became the first uh, employee at all at Ardent's real studio that John Fry put in. So I sort of brought over a lot of the Stax overflow session there, I would say to Steve, oh, well, we've got an eight track if you need more tracks. Oh yeah. Oh really? So <laughs> it just sort of was this big Memphis family that everybody knew everybody and uh, just all hung out together and, and did, did a little bit at high studios also called Royal Willie Mitchell's place yeah. a little bit at American studios, which was ships moment also Dan Penn and Spooner Oldham and, and Tommy Cogbill and some others over there. Uh, so I was just all over different places, but centered at that by that time around Ardent. Uh, and, and just, I, I can't even describe it. It was just the most amazing musical family situation I could have ever been lucky enough to be. And I doubt if there were, I doubt if Detroit could have been that way for me. Maybe Los Angeles, but it was a bit more, a bit bigger and more spread out. And and Memphis was everybody knew everybody. It was not. It was the we used to call it the biggest little town in America and the smallest city in America. Every it was a little of both, and everybody knew everybody, especially in music. Plus, you were making hits, though. I mean, that was the difference. That there were pockets like that everywhere, but they weren't making hits like were coming out of Memphis. Oh my gosh, it was so amazing to have, when you think about what Sun did with Sam Phillips, 
then over to Stacks with Jim Stewart, Steve Cropper, and the whole crew, uh, tons of great people at, at Stacks. When you think of the musicians being Duck Dunn, Booker T, Al Jackson Jr., Isaac Hayes, Wayne Jackson, and Andrew Love. I mean, the musicians were the, we didn't know it, but they were the best in the world at what they did. And then you could look at American with Reggie Young and Tommy Cogbill and Gene Chrisman, Chips Moman. I mean, amazing. Right down the road, which we also worked out a little bit at Muscle Shoals, you had the whole Muscle Shoals crew. And then at, 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 at High, you've got, you had uh, the Mitchells, of course, who ran it. And then you had the Hodges, Teeny and Leroy and Flick the brothers who were part of the high rhythm section. Uh, again, Al Jackson on drums there, Memphis horns, greatest horn play. It was, wow, what a place to be. They were all so good. But honestly, I'd, I, it was, it's a bit cheeky of me to say, but I don't think anybody knew, even the guys doing it, how good everybody was at that time. Yeah. We, I say we, because they were a much bigger part of it, all, all the other people I've mentioned, but I'll say we, because I was there, were an island unto, first of all, we were in the racially, very segregated, very racially uh, cauldron of a city, but we were all islands of music people that were of all colors. Black people in the bands, white people in the bands, some Muslim guys, some Christian guys, some Jewish guys. Nobody cared. It, it was just completely an island of, of creative freedom where nobody worried about that kind of crap and just did their jobs. We also didn't worry about other places. Sure, we'd hear Motown on the radio or maybe something from Philadelphia or the L.A. things from the Wrecking Crew and all the other great bands and New York, Tom Dowd and the Atlantic people would hear all that, but we weren't copying it. Nobody cared. We really would much rather go to gigs and listen to ourselves than to listen to, to what other people did. Not until the Stax tour, Stax Volt tour of the UK and other parts of Europe in 1967, when they came back going, they loved us. They knew us. We have hits. I mean, everybody, it was stunning. Not until then did we realize what we were doing was that good. I know that sounds crazy, but it's just, we only cared about ourselves until it started opening up in the late 60s. And then, of course, on into the 70s, 80s and beyond. But I'm going to jump ahead a little bit with you, but maybe not. You went to England then and wound up at Abbey Road. And I'm curious about this in particular because... I co-wrote uh, Ken Scott's autobiography. I know, yes. In that, I talked to so many people from that era. And occasionally it came up when they talked about trying to compete with other places. And Stax was always one of the places that they talked about, that they would analyze the songs coming out of there and going, why do they sound so good and ours don't, don't sound like that? And you'd think it'd be, you know, the other way around, but it, it, it wasn't. So how did they treat you when you got there? And, and how did you get that gig? Well, I didn't really, I was not an employee of Abbey Road. Okay. I was a client. I had become, over those, all the years in between where we just started talking, I became uh, a producer as well and an engineer, of course, of whatever I produced and for other people. And uh, I had had 
several things that had become very big hits. I was a friend of Jimmy Page's and I did the Led Zeppelin three part of that album with Andy and uh, Andy Johns and uh, had overdone overdubs, all the mixing and mastering of that. And I loved the Beatles. I was the biggest Beatles fan in the world. I loved the Yardbirds. I loved the animals. I loved the whole English thing. And as great as the Memphis things were, were the music, as, as great as the music was, and I knew I loved it and was part of it, you always look somewhere else. And when the English invasion came, I was, wow, this is so good. So I wanted to go to England. I wanted to work there. I wanted to produce or work with English acts as well. So once my manager came to me and said, look, I've got a, a band in England. Uh, they are actually Irish and English uh, that uh, they want you to produce, but they want you, they want to record in England. I said, well, great. So I said, why don't I just move over there and you find me some more things while we're there? And he did. So I moved into a flat on Marlboro Place, which is right about three houses off of Abbey Road. And so every day I would walk down Marlboro Place, turn onto Abbey Road, and walk through the album cover to work. <laughs> I, I, I thought that every day. Yes, here it is. There, <laughs> there's the zebra crossing, and here's where they were walking, and here's where everybody, all these Dave Clark Five and George Martin and everybody were, you know. So I was such a fan, but I, I booked, I was at Abbey Road for a year. I just booked every act that I did into Abbey Road and worked there. Uh, I just loved it so much. But how did people react? Because I also, during that time, I worked at Mayfair Studios, whatever Manfred Mann's studio was called. I forgot the name of it again, out on King's Road. But anyway, several places I worked in England as well, but for a full year at Abbey Road. But what, what did they think of me coming from Memphis? They would look at me strangely because they said, you don't work like engineers here work. And I kept wondering, well, what do they do that's different? I put up mics, I'd get I EQ things, I'd get levels, whatever. So finally, I remember one day at Mayfair Studio, the you would you would always get an assistant engineer who was an employee of the place to help you because they know where they have the keys and they know where the headphones are kept and all that sort of thing. So one day he said, "You're you're so different from all the engineer uh, English engineers and producers here." I said, okay, wait, what is different? I want to know because I don't understand that. And he said, instead of finding technical solutions when problems come up, you find musical solutions. And I just, I still don't quite understand what he meant, but he was watching me every day working and he's a very smart guy and he knew a lot about engineering and production. So there must be something to what he said. So that's the only feedback I ever got that was a definition of it in some way that I would find a musical way to fix something that was not working right. And English engineers, according to this one guy would look first to the technical side. What does that mean? You, hmm. you could maybe tell me, I don't know. Well, okay. That being said, did you find that what you were doing, it, may, it must have been the case, that sound-wise then, it would be different than what the English guys would be getting in, out of the same room? I would imagine it would have to be different. 
I, yeah, somebody did also mention that I, I added more bass to things. I got deeper bass tones. How did you get that bass sound? Well, I don't know. It's the way I always get it. You know, you put a mic on the bass amp <laughs> or plug a DI in. But uh, listen to the stacks of things now, and they are still incredible. They hold up so well. The bass is there. The drums sound incredible and up front. The horns are right in your face. The singers, you hear everything. And sometimes, even if there's a lot on it, strings and everything else, you hear everything. And there's just something about the way we approach EQing and mixing and getting things balanced that is just a special way. I don't understand what's different about it, but it holds up to this day. I can hear it. Every time something comes on, a lot of times they'll use, hold on, I'm coming on a commercial on TV. Wham! When it comes on, it's just in your face. Wow. I still say that when it comes on. Wow. How did that happen? Why is, it, why is that so good? And at the time, you're just doing your job. You're just in the, in the groove. In a way, I'm just now sort of thinking of this. I've never quite thought of it before, but in a way... There were the producers on on the stacks hits. Yes, there was a Jim Stewart in charge, or a Steve Cropper, or an Isaac Hayes, and a David Porter maybe in charge of certain things. But in another way, everybody involved was in charge. The horn players, for instance. Let's take Otis Redding. On his very first record, and you've probably heard the story of him arriving at the session as the driver for the band. And, and, and kept antagonizing everybody. Let me sing, let me sing, let me try one until they just said, okay, go sing one. And the one he sang was These Arms of Mine. And if you listen to it, there are no horns on it. It's the only Otis song I can, there may be another somewhere, but the reason there were no horns on it because everyone else had gone home except Steve and Booker and Duck and Al and, and he just said, okay, here's my song. So when you hear Steve doing the little mandolin-y kind of arpeggiated thing, that's what, a horn, that's what the horns would do. But they weren't uh -huh. there, so Steve was doing it. So later, on all of the Otis things, when the horns were there, Otis wrote the horn parts. He would tell the horns, I want you to play this, or whatever it would be, and they would play it. He wasn't the producer, Steve was, but Otis was riding the horns, co-writing with the horn players. Uh, they were all riding their parts. They were all doing their thing. And it was very rare for me to hear the producer, Jim Stewart or Steve or whoever might be in charge of a particular thing, say to the musicians, don't do that, do this, like you hear producers do. So in a way, everyone was producing. Everyone was on a wavelength, uh, on fire on a wavelength, like I've never seen anywhere else. And the same at high with Willie Mitchell and, and the high section. And really the same at American on a different wavelength, of course, much more pop in a way with Elvis and Neil Diamond and Dusty Springfield and the things they did. But uh, again, huge hits coming out of at least four studios in Memphis at one magic golden time with four different incredible rhythm sections 
un, as good as or better than anyone else's anywhere. The yeah. Wrecking Crew, sure, great sections, but there weren't four or five se sections full of them in L.A., even in L.A. Yeah. But in Memphis, there were all of those people, plus the Bar K's, the Sax B group, ready to go in and, and, and play with Isaac or anyone at any moment. So you mentioned working with Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin. Here you go from working with a bunch of artists that were successful and were world famous, but were not on the level of fame like Led Zeppelin. So what was that like, just to, in terms of uh, comparison? Well, I had met Jimmy on this tour I mentioned, when he, uh, with the Yardbirds coming to the U.S. and our band opened for him, and that led me into a hanging out with the Yardbirds situation, even if we weren't playing with them. So Jimmy and I had become good friends. He had come, he had driven back from some gigs in Kentucky with me in the car directly to Arden Studios in Memphis, all the way asking questions about Sam Phillips, asking questions about what does Steve Cropper play? What's his amp? What's, you know, all these, these different things. What's, what's Stun like? What's Stax like? What's all, he, was, he was so into Memphis music that we bonded on that level right then. At that time, he was in the Yardbirds, and there was no Led Zeppelin yet, and they weren't war the biggest rock band maybe of all time. So as he later morphed into the, first the new Yardbirds and then Led Zeppelin and brought in Plant and Bonham and John Paul Jones to be another group that was the best in the world, all four of them at what they did at that time. Nobody better at what any of them did. And there they were in one band. Very few bands like that. The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, but not many bands that do that. So when that happened and they exploded worldwide, he was already on the first two albums. He was sending me cassettes <laughs> that date you sending me cassette copies of their first and second album. What do you think? Here's what we're doing. And then when it exploded, we would still talk on the phone once a week at least and send letters, actual written handwritten letters back and forth um, and just talk about things. So when I did work with them, it was because he had started the third album recording at Olympic and at Headley Grange uh, with Andy Johns. And they didn't finish before a U.S. tour was booked. So Jimmy called me up and said, look, I need help. I know you. I've been to your studio. I know the equipment you have and the instruments and everything you've got. You're perfectly positioned to help me. I need to come in between shows as we tour and on days off, I'll fly into Memphis and get with you. You pick me up. We go to work. We work until the flight to go back. I won't even sleep. And we'll get this thing finished on several overdub sessions and then we'll mix. And I, can you do that? So I said, duh. Yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I can do that. So uh, that's how we did it. And what was it like? Yeah, we were already multi-platinum and the album would go number one immediately in the world. But I didn't think of it like that. I thought of it as my friend Jimmy and his band. And I would hear it and go, wow, this is a great song, Jimmy. Oh, I love what you did here. And he said, yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> and he said, Jimmy would be shimmying his shoulders and go, you know what? 
nobody will catch up to this for years. <laughs> and I'd go, you're right. But we didn't, I think he, he may have, but I didn't think, wow, this is a big famous group. This is a big famous session. I better be careful or I better take photos or any of that stuff. None of that. I just did my job for my friend. Uh, only later with hindsight, do you go back. <laughs> this is a funny story. I was doing, I mean, it's a, an aside, quite a bit of an aside. I was doing an album with John Popper, a solo album at Water Music in Hoboken, New Jersey. And we're doing our pre-production. And there was a billboard for that week sitting there. And they were trying to work out some stuff. So I'd sat there and opened the billboard. And I went to the charts section where they say, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, this were the chart. And I looked down. And on every one of the ones, I had something in the top five or 10 or number one or whatever, the Led Zeppelin being one, Staple Singers being an, and then a whatever. And I would look down at it. And, and at that point is the first time I ever remember going, gee, wow, that's amazing, isn't it? How, how did that happen? You know? Yeah. Wow. So, but I'm sure you know that from the things you've done, you don't go to work thinking you're going to make history. Yeah. You go to work to do your job and you're lucky if some history happens, usually because of the other people. Stay tuned for part two of my interview with Terry Manning, where you'll hear some inside info on the making of ZZ Top's biggest hits, as well as working at the famous Compass Point Studios and much more. You can find out more about Terry at terrymanning.com. That's Terry Manning, M-A-N-N-I-N-G, all one word, terrymanning.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, where you can find an Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Yeah.